0: I'm Elliot Coffee,
1: and you're listening to Weekly Brew. You're
0: listening
1: to the Weekly Brew. She up.
2: Welcome into the Weekly Brew. This is episode 23, and our first podcast for the year 2016. As always, I'm joined this week by Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxton. The song that you hear playing right now is Hype It, which was selected by former Baylor linebacker Elliot Coffey, who also spent time with the Broncos and Texans organization. We'll have him on as a guest later in the show. Now, while I spent New Year's Eve watching the college football playoffs, Kevin, you were actually covering the Peach Bowl in Atlanta. Tell us how it was. Uh, it was astounding.
3: It was uh, the atmosphere was tremendous. Um, obviously, Georgia Dome, great place to uh, to play a game. I was up in the press box, uh, biggest event that I've covered. You know, if you've been listening to the show, I've been sort of pumping up how excited I was to be there. And then there was a feeling of um, of some dread uh, before the game. I remember Joseph Duarte, uh, who I met, a great guy, Houston Chronicle writer. He um, he predicted a loss. I know some other people he was talking to predicted losses. Um, they were seven point underdogs. Uh, a lot of people were saying. Things like they were just happy to be there. Even Tom Herman, uh, the coach of the Houston Cougar football program, was uh, was saying in uh, pregame press conferences, you know, we're win, lose, or draw was one of his quotes. We're here, we're on the national stage, and we deserve to be here. So I think that it was uh, everybody was surprised. I really nobody wasn't dumbfounded by the twenty-one to three halftime lead and the way that they did it. Uh, you know, we talked with Elliot, um, and he he kind of alluded to they they weren't. Um, it wasn't like a schematic thing. They were just man handle. It was, it was a better game by a better team is what it looked like, and I think nobody expected that, the 18th-ranked uh, Cougars versus the 9th-ranked Seminoles, so uh, to be on hand for that, to have been you know a graduate of the University of Houston and to um, to sort of have that in my pedigree and then to be able to cover it was amazing, so you know I've got my press pass. I still saved it, and uh, you know it was a really meaningful moment to me, and it was a great game, too. It was a fun game to cover, so I got some really good coverage out of it. Um, I have a piece on Kyle Postma, who was the backup quarterback that um, ran 29 yards for a first down at the two-yard line. And then uh, Ryan Jackson punched it in for the score that ended up being the winning score was the difference when Florida State was kind of making a comeback. So, um, I mean, it was just great moments, great game, uh, you know, great coach and a great team. It was, it was really truly something to be in attendance there and to sort of get to be behind the scenes and, and, and see everything uh, happening as it played out.
2: And if our listeners remember correctly, Larry Little, who we had on episode 20, actually predicted U of H to win this game. So that's just more validity to his college football rankings. Yeah, that
3: was surprising. He predicted a 27-24 win. They actually ended up winning uh, 38-24. So he was right, uh, right on the money with the Florida score. That was kind of surprising. But uh, I guess U of H exceeded even his expectations and, uh, and certainly uh, most people in the national media's expectations as well.
1: Now Kevin, being a U of H alum and being at the game, having to cover it as a so-called objective journalist, how how hard was that for you? Um, as a huge fan of U of H and to try to remain objective at the same time.
3: They gave the typical, you know, over the the PA system in the press box, they said, you know, any cheering will not be permitted. This is a professional working press box and you will be thrown out or whatever. So I had a bit of nervousness, but I actually ended up seated next to um, Joseph Duarte uh, of the Chronicle and John Royal of the uh, press were on my left. And then I had the Daily Cougar, which is no longer daily, by the way. It's the U of H school newspaper that I used to uh, write for and be an editor for. Uh, Definitely part of my pedigree as well. But uh, the sports editor, Bryce Dodds, uh, met him at the game and he was seated to my right. Uh, he was terrific, a terrific kid. I certainly enjoyed, uh, sitting next to him, working with him and so forth, but, uh, it sort of seemed at moments like, um, you know, I was the quote unquote professional journalist and, you know, I actually do this for a living. This is kind of my job. And so I wouldn't say that there was anything in the way he treated me that said he was looking up to me necessarily, but it kind of felt like a role model situation where I was the paid journalist and he was the student. And so, you know, I didn't, I I really couldn't afford to be ecstatic or be, you know, um, Unprofessional, and so I felt sort of this pressure all game long. Of here's a kid that you know wants to do this professionally. I do this professionally, and he's kind of watching to me. So it was actually fairly easy uh, to keep it all in the box there. But uh, but I was just going to say as well, uh, Bryce, it was a pleasure uh, meeting you and working with you there, and um, actually helped me get some art for some of my articles as well. So uh, it was a great experience all around, and uh, and amazingly because I had some eyes on me, it wasn't too
2: hard. To be professional. <laughs> well, it sounds like you had a great time at the game, and we'll dive into the implications of that later on the podcast. But, Jeremy, as I understand, you are wrecking havoc in our state capitol this weekend. How was it?
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, from what I remember, um, I, it, was a, it was a great time. Uh, New Year's was, of course, uh, a rolling brownout, as usual. I'm discovering that my 30-year-old liver uh, cannot keep up with the rest of me. So i um, kind of just feeling that out right now, trying to recover. But um, other than that, uh, <clears throat> being in the state capitol, uh, there was not a whole lot going on. Um, other than just Austin being Austin. So, um, had a, had a great news overall. What about you guys?
2: I think we kind of discussed that a little bit.
1: <laughs> oh, sorry. well, yeah. Well, nobody,
3: nobody knows what you've been up to this, uh, this new year's Austin. They just heard about mine. What, uh, how was, how was your, uh, week? How's it going with you, buddy?
2: Well, I mean, I mentioned it at the top of the show, I don't think uh, anybody was listening though while spending new years watching college football playoffs. So,
3: Okay, well, that's that's pretty brief. Uh, I, I think you could fill it out a little bit. I don't blame Jeremy for the question.
2: Yeah, I mean, my week was good. Uh, you know, I was able to work from home uh, several days. Uh, so you know, working from home that, you know, uh, that means watching college football a little bit. Uh, <laughs> so uh, that you know, that was enjoyable. I definitely was able to uh, spend some time with uh, some friends who were in town uh, this week and just kind of dissecting the games that were going on. You know, also had the chance to, uh, you know, kind of uh, you know, dive into a little bit more writing a little bit more uh, reading. So I, I don't know, Maybe it was relaxing, uh, but, you know, that's, I think, a good way to start 2016, but... Um Definitely enjoyed it and definitely looking forward to what 2016 has to offer and especially what it has to offer for the podcast. And, uh, you know, especially with the podcast, we want to thank our sponsors, We Desserts, for, you know, kind of helping us out a little bit in 2015. And we look forward to our partnership heading into 2016. And as always, all listeners of the Weekly Brew Podcast get 10% off of their final purchase at We Desserts. And you can find them at 3411 Kirby here in Houston.
3: And for new listeners, it's worth pointing out That we is uh, OUI I've been told um, that's a French word Of some sort, of some variety I'm not familiar with um, any language Other than English, but uh, but yeah We desserts 3411 Kirby And obviously the thing they push the most Is beignet day on Fridays and Saturdays And I don't know if you have had a beignet lately um, These are the best beignets outside of Café du Mans, uh Also a French word in, uh, in New Orleans, so you should definitely get out there Try the beignets Fridays and Saturdays all day long It's beignet day, and they've been running out too so you want to get there early in the day, have yourself a fine New Orleans style beignet uh, and take in the stuff. there. 10% off if you're a Weekly Brew listener or Weekly Brew podcaster. I discovered that we don't get free stuff. We only get 10% <laughs> off too. So that was, uh, was new knowledge for me.
2: And as always, you can find us on iTunes search Weekly Brew Podcasts and we want you to go there. Give us a five star review. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. Uh, more importantly, we want you to leave that review. We appreciate all feedback as long as it's constructive and can help us out. And we definitely take that to heart. Also, you can find us on social media, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Weekly Brewcast. And as of 2016, we are actually launching a website. You can find us at weeklybrewcast.com. We're going to be posting a lot of content on there. So it's kind of a supplement to our social media presence. But that is something that I am looking forward to moving forward in 2016.
3: And that's got some exclusive Kevin Cook content. So, uh, you know, I, I do get paid to write not by this podcast, obviously, but, uh, so it is, it is a privilege and an honor to be able to read the stuff that I put up there. So definitely go check it out, uh, with, with
2: the new year looming again, 2016, we are going to be plugging Kevin cook and hoping that, uh, you know, he makes it big that by the end of the year, he's on ESPN. I mean, that's our goal making that happen. I'm riding this thing all the <laughs> way to the top. All right, folks, we've got a packed show on deck, so it's time to sit back, grab a drink, listen, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. I think it's no secret that this podcast thoroughly enjoys college football and its bowl season. Quite an impressive performance by three Texas teams this past week, Baylor, U of H. And on Saturday night, TCU capped off a phenomenal win in the Alamo Bowl despite trailing 31-0 at the half. Now joining us on the Weekly Brew to break down the bowl season and give us a look at the Texans as they gear up for the playoffs is the 2011 Alamo Bowl defensive MVP, Elliot Coffey. Elliot, thanks for joining us this week. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Before we get started, tell the listeners what you've been up to since you've uh, left Baylor uh, and you know had your time with both the Broncos and Texans organization.
0: It's been a ride. So uh, a lot of people don't know. I played my senior season injured had a broken shoulder and a uh, torn labrum. So after the season, went out and played a, uh, one of those senior bowls out in L.A. that the NFLPA put on. Played like crap. Parents noticed. Um, didn't realize how bad my shoulder injury was. So I got shoulder surgery uh, in February of that next year. Got picked up by the Broncos in, uh, in free agency after the draft. Went up there, uh, rehabbed, and, and went out during training camp and saw the, the brutal reality of how tough the NFL is and um, ended up getting cut by them at the end of training camp. So rehab, got healthy, 2013 rolled around, spent training camp with the Texans, and uh, faced the the brutal reality again of how hard it is to make a team, especially as an undrafted free agent. So learned a lot, had a ton of good experiences, something I'd never, you know, trade for anything, but it made me realize how much I love football and how much I love not tearing up my body. So since then, um, you know, I've been covering Football, had a TV show down in Houston for a little bit. Uh, did the pregame show for the Baylor games every home game this year. Had a little segment called Cup of Coffee, that had a ton of fun in. Uh, broke down special teams and defense and things that I thought the team needed to work on each week in order to become a championship caliber team. And, you know, even though we didn't end up winning the Big 12 or making the, the Final Four, we did become a bowl champion. So it was great to see those guys you know, step up in the face of adversity, a ton of injuries, and, and go on. And now I'm working in Houston uh, with Merrill Lynch and learning to become a, a financial advisor, stockbroker, all that good stuff, and uh, taking those tests and, and moving on
2: jack of all trades I guess let's jump into Baylor and the Russell Athletic Bowl Uh, obviously a different schematic team that we saw from our Bryles uh, rushing for a bowl record more than 600 yards and of course Johnny Jefferson 23 carries 299 yards three touchdowns what was your reaction after seeing Baylor essentially run the wildcat for the entire game
0: you know I think I think you need to call that thing the bearcat now we absolutely revolutionized (laughs) what we knew, I, I think you take it back to, I guess it was Cadillac Williams and that crew down in Auburn who first ran it, that we first saw it um, in college football. And, I mean, having Johnny Jefferson go back there and his ability to run as effectively as he did, you know, the difficulty with the Wildcat is there are for every person that's in the box on defense, you have a blocker for him. So you basically have a free runner. And having Johnny Jefferson with the, the ability to pass the ball and his vision, I think, is what we really learned is just incredible. Size, speed, and vision. When you have that, you have a Marshall Falk-type running back. And that's what you're seeing from Johnny. So it, it was a, it was absolutely incredible to see how dominant that offensive line was, even though, you know, with Patrick Colbert out, um, you know, with the injuries that we sustained along that offensive line as well, the fact that we were still able to get downhill and really manhandle that that North Carolina defensive line who – they would given up, I want to say, anywhere from five to six hundred yards a game. But they hadn't given up. I think their average was about twenty-eight to thirty yards, or twenty-eight to thirty points a game, is what they had been giving up. So the fact that we didn't throw the ball much uh, and still rush for six forty-five, which I think is just insane, uh, says a lot about Coach Browse. It says a lot about Coach Cos and that strength staff and their ability to really grow those kids up and turn them into men.
2: After having some disappointment in the last few bowl years, you know, uh, the Fiesta Bowl disappointment, and obviously last year with the Cotton Bowl, how important was it for Baylor to get this one this year?
0: It was huge, man. It was huge. Um, you know, I don't think that we were ready for the stage that was set when we showed up to the Fiesta Bowl, because Blake Bortles and that UCF team was really talented, and I think because they came from a lower conference, we didn't expect them to, to start out guns blazing the way they did. So, It was tough that game. Cotton Bowl, I mean, that's just as depressing of a game as it gets. Connor Cook is going to be a first-round pick, so not to take anything away from him, but we were definitely in a position to win that game. You can see how momentum swings, and I know we'll talk about TCU later, but that momentum is really a powerful thing, especially in the college game, because these guys mentally just aren't as strong as the NFL players are yet. And for us to go out and not have a quarterback, which – that's our game. We, we go left, we go right, we'll hit you in the mouth, but then we stretch the field. To not have that option to stretch the field the way we had, I mean, it just shows that this team is growing up, and it's going to be a scary thing from here on out because we're going to have Seth back. We're going to have them back, but from here on out, this is a team that is completely balanced on offense, and I think you're seeing the progression of the spread of the, of the, of the run-and-shoot offense, and this is what it's going to be from here on out if you can develop that.
2: With Baylor replacing essentially their entire offensive line, next year do you see that as possible you know possibly a a hindrance for the team moving forward or do you think that Bryles and uh, you know coach Levy have built them up in the recruiting front uh, you know where it's essentially reloading and not rebuilding
0: no I mean the thing is if you look at recruiting right now we already have some good guys that are in-house but we have um I'm blanking on it. the first Patrick can you help me on his name
2: Hudson The uh, Hudson uh, yeah
0: Patrick Hudson yep exactly he's the number one OT in the country we have him coming. In. He's a 6'6, 330 pounder. He's going to be absolutely dominant when he steps on the football field. we got another guy, JD Uriquez or something like that, that's coming in. So we're, we're reloading. We're absolutely reloading. Coach Clem has done a phenomenal job. I mean, look at we've had two Outland trophies in the past three years. So I'm not worried about the offensive line. I think what we saw there, I think the big thing for us is just to sustain the momentum that we have, you know, ending the season and driving into the next year.
1: Uh, Elliot, just kind of bringing this back to your experience at Baylor. I mean, I, I know that the program has changed immensely over the past, really, just five years. Uh, tell us a little bit about your experience in the program and um, your, you know, how, how you see it going in the future here with this bowl win.
0: So you never bite the hand that feeds. Uh, Coach Browse didn't bring me in. He offered me at U of H, but I came in under Guy Morris, and Guy was, you know, he's the guy that got me to Baylor. So I will never knock him but the system that they had in place was not conducive to us becoming a powerful, uh, a nation leading team. So when coach Kaz came in with coach browse, the complete mindset overhaul was, is something that I carry on with myself still now, just the attention to detail uh, the focus on speed and explosion. And that's the thing for me, you know, I was an undersized linebacker, so to speak, playing about six foot two, thirty-five. but my speed was something that really worked uh, in my favor, and that's something that coach Browns took and and not only had my speed, but really developed me into a, a complete player. So that's what you're gonna see with these guys. And that's what I see, you know really this this program moving forward. is there's a system in place now. And if you're not a guy that's gonna come and develop, then you're gonna struggle. And the reality is we have enough guys now, enough ballers out there to where if you're struggling, if you're not keeping up, not that we're gonna get rid of you, but they're gonna find somebody that is gonna develop, that is gonna listen. And that's why this team is seeing success year in and year out. And and really, like I said, on the recruiting front, we're just stepping up. So I think that if we continue to recruit the way we do, I mean, we have a top 10 class this year, a top five class coming in next year. These guys are going to be developed. That's the issue that UT is dealing with is they get all these four and five-star recruits, but they really struggle with the player development. And that's what this coaching staff understands. And that's what,
1: from an administrative standpoint, you're really seeing. If if you just look at – you know just, just the UT program. I mean, a program that really has no excuse to be where they are. Um, It's not just uh, the coaching. It's definitely the infrastructure um, and the support behind uh, the coaching staff. And so um, I, I just, looking at my experience at Baylor and when I was there and when I look at it now, it's just two completely different worlds. I mean, not only do you have like a coaching staff led by Bryles that's uh, you know, totally committed to making Baylor into a championship team, but you have an infrastructure behind him that is 100 110% uh, behind what he's doing. So uh, yeah, I, I just, I couldn't be more impressed with what's going on. For the
3: first time in a long, long time, if we're talking about the best college football in Texas, we're talking about my alma mater, uh, U of H. And you mentioned U of H a minute ago. So, you know, obviously they uh, knock off a a fa- I know. I, I'm, I'm very much in that mindset myself. I was actually in Atlanta. I covered the game. Uh, one of the peaks of my uh, journalistic careers, certainly. But, you know, I've, I've vocally expressed bitterness before about losing Art Bryles uh, to you guys at Baylor or losing Kevin Tumlin to a and And it kind of seems like uh, with the momentum this team has, I mean, uh, Tom Herman, is he the guy and how big of a star on his resume is this win in the Peach Bowl?
0: Tom Herman is to U of H what Art Bryles is to Baylor. And if he understands that, then he's gonna sit tight and he's gonna ride this wave. If it's about the money, they're gonna pay him, as you see. City of Houston has a ton of money. University of Houston has a ton of donors who went through some pretty dark times. They followed Coach Browse, and they were they were on board with Sumlin, but they just didn't have, you know, the facilities, I think, to to keep up with the power Five teams around Texas. Now you're seeing that change. You're seeing the new stadium, you're seeing them rebuild that campus I mean if you haven't been down there it's absolutely beautiful what they're doing and it's it's intimidating to, to Baylor and it, it's piggybacks on one of the things coach Brown's is saying about uh, Baylor I went to that lunch in the summer before the season started off and he's saying this school's got to get bigger because right now it's great to go out and to have you know 15,000 students and fill in all 15,000 students in your 45,000 seat stadium but it's going to have to get bigger because it's a show the pageantry that's behind college football right now drive success as much as anything else so U of H is in a prime position right now to really go back to their glory I mean heck they had a Heisman winner in 1989 in Andre Ware if you don't think that Greg Ward Jr. Or any of those other guys out there have the capability to go out and be a Heisman you're kidding yourself Florida State was a good team Florida State didn't get out class Florida State got manhandled and that's just going to say that you know it's what coach Browse put in place it's what Sumlin put in place Levine I'm sure had some some inner workings that that are a part of that as well but Herman's the guy, and as long as he sticks around U of A, so as long as they keep backing him, as long as they have that, that hive mindset where we're all going to stick together, we're all united that's going to be a really, really scary program, and I think they're headed for the Power Five a lot sooner than most people think.
3: That's an interesting point, actually. Um, Herman has been kind of the star of a lot of this talk because obviously he took a team that was 7-5 and five last season under Tony Levine, tied for fourth in the American Athletic Conference, and they win the conference and then obviously um, do really well against Florida State there. You know, there have been stories kind of uh, about how he chained the locker rooms and chained the culture uh, of the program. So, I mean, what, how... What is it? What is good coaching? What has Herman been able to do with this program in terms of what you're hearing from the outside that's been so impactful in getting them back to a place of some success?
0: You know, I think the number one confusion in between uh, what a head coach should be and what a head coach is, is a head coach is not your friend. And Coach Briles, to me, is one of the friendliest, the best player coach in the country, but he wasn't our friend. We respected him like a father. And... If a coach can step in and understand that, you know what, I can't be friends with these guys because they're a bunch of knuckleheaded kids, but I will love them and I will nurture them and I will create the best player and bring out the best in them, then they'll be better off. Herman's a screamer. If you guys have ever seen him coach, he's yelling his head off. He's getting in those guys' faces. But that passion is the only way that he knows how to tell these guys how much he cares. And if you watch that post-game, or the post-game interview where he's in tears, you know, in a grill, then you understand that Herman did it. <laughs> And Herman is passionate, man. And and to kind of go back on that grill thing, he's in Houston. Houston is an interesting city. Houston loves our grills. We love our 22s. We love, you know, our rap music. We love all that stuff, but he understands it. And for him to do that and really embody it instead of ignore it, which I think Charlie Strong is really ignoring the culture at UT, Mm -hmm. I think that he's just going to keep on surging, and it's going to be really, really fun to watch this thing play out.
2: And speaking of U of H, I mean, they're dominating right now on the recruiting front. I mean, with the whole mantra of H Town takeover, uh, they arguably have one of the best defensive tackles and Ed Oliver coming in next year. They've got Tyree Cleveland, De'Eric King, Courtney Lark. I mean, all four star prospects or five star prospects. I mean, how important was that win, going thirteen and one, beating great Florida State, like a traditional power, in terms of you know recruiting momentum heading into twenty sixteen and beyond?
0: It's it, it's everything, because. The grill may be great, the music may be great, the new stadium may be great, but you have to complete it. And when you go out and you get a win on a huge stage like that in the Peach Bowl in Atlanta, the whole country's watching. I don't know what the ratings were like on that game, but I know I was glued to the TV the entire game, and I was cheering my head off like it was Baylor out there, like I was playing, you know what I mean? And even if it is just the city of Houston, it's something funny that I heard is that the University of Houston has a much better reputation outside of Houston than it does in the city and that's because we have so many baylor grads and ut grads and a and m grads so nationally if you start to build up that reputation not only be a great program but a fun program then they're going to start making waves that a lot of people are going to get uncomfortable with and when they make that move to the power five dude you better watch out because this is a recruiting hotbed and it's easy to get to these kids it's easy to get them to your school that's a huge issue you look at U or uh, hawaii right now Hawaii's struggling financially because they're not winning. They can't build a new new stadium, and they can't get people out there very easily. So I don't know if they make you still commit now, but I know when I was getting recruited, you had to commit to Hawaii to get a visit out there. So U of H to be in the middle of this recruiting hotbed that, to be honest, like I said, U of H, Tech, Baylor is just picking kids out of, it's not going to be that easy anymore because right now, why would you leave Houston if you have a chance to go out and win a national championship right here at home.
3: You mentioned the Power Five there, and every, everything I'm hearing indicates that the Big 12 obviously is not an option, but I have heard some interesting theories otherwise. I mean, just in terms of what you know or what you're hearing, where might be a possible landing state for U of H, uh, and what, what is the trajectory of this program over the next you know, five or ten years, do you think?
0: I've been here at SEC, and it, I don't think it's too out of place because no Big 12 school wants U of H in the Big Twelve. It's that simple. We'll schedule you like, oh, you scheduled U of H for the first game of next year in NRG Stadium because, oh, you can get down here and they can get in the high schools. But you better believe they don't want U of H in the Big 12 because that just starts to mingle with with our recruiting interests. So if you go east, then you have what they were trying to do with A&M by getting more of a presence in Texas. If you can get a presence in Houston... I mean, that is just, for the conference, it's great, the SEC, and it's just great for U of H, too, because that puts them on a bigger stage. You better believe there's kids in Houston, in and around Houston, that are SEC caliber, as you know from LSU, just eating off our plate, and and A&M as well, that that could be a really scary fit for U of H.
2: And transitioning to the Alamo Bowl, I mean, I know that game was pretty important to you your senior year going out with the uh, the massive win over Washington and, you know, high scoring left and right. You won defensive MVP, but it seems like that game every year excites. And on January 2nd, TCU and Oregon, I mean, TCU trailing 31 to nothing at the half and then. You know, with a backup quarterback and Bram Kohlhausen coming out there and scoring on every single drive in the second half to force overtime and ultimately winning the game in triple overtime, what does that say about the state of that program, you know, with all the injuries that they've had this year, beating a powerhouse like Oregon in the Pac-12? That's
0: the kind of thing that dreams are made of. That's the kind of thing that a coach tells you when he sits down with you and your family in your living room and says, you have the opportunity to do something great. Graham Kohlhausen, did, he didn't start a game this season, did he?
2: Correct. He did not.
0: So when you sit down with Graham Colehausen and his family and you tell him, you know what, you have a chance to come in and do something great, and five years pass by and you haven't started a game and you're seeing Trevon Boykin in front of you about to win a Heisman, you have to feel like your chances are down. Like there's no way you're going to step in and have that opportunity. Boykin goes out, gets in a fight, and all of a sudden you're up. So it's, it's, it's unfathomable that a guy who hasn't started – that I'm sure didn't think he was going to even play in this game can step in and produce the way he did. And that is why I love college football, because that is what you're hoping for. It, it was funny. I was watching the game with my dad yesterday, and he kind of lost focus on it. He started watching some TV show, So I went and downloaded the ESPN uh, Go app and watched it on my phone, and it got to the point where that second half rolled around, and they knocked out Oregon's quarterback. You could feel the air kind of come out of Oregon. And when that momentum shift happens, man, it's strong. And it changes games. And TCU is incredibly talented. Without Dotson, without uh, Colby Listenby who got hurt as well, man, do you had some new guys? This is the thing. You're asking about the, the offensive line at Baylor. Are they going to be able to reload? Guys become warriors. Guys become legends in moments like that. And that's when he stepped in. This is a legendary game that we got to watch yesterday. And I'm, I'm giddy that I got a chance to, to even watch it. I talked to my best friend, Clifton Odom, who's a graduate assistant, you know, he's, he's calling me at 2 o'clock in the morning after Boykin gets in a fight telling me that, hey, I don't know if we're going to win this game. We're in trouble because we got a guy in Bram Kohlhausen that can step in here and really produce, and you didn't see it in the first half. but Those guys never gave up, and when he stepped in there in that second half, you saw that drive, and kudos to Aaron Green as well, who ran his heart out. I liken him a lot to a, a Johnny Jefferson type who's not not huge, great vision, and just keeps moving his feet. So it was really special to, to watch that, to be a part of it. and You know, that Alamo Bowl, man, I don't know what it is about that game, but they like to play down in San Antonio.
1: Yeah, just to add on to to Bram's story, this really was a storybook ending for him personally. Uh, I don't know if you guys know, but he recently just lost his father. He, uh, he passed away from a very aggressive form of melanoma. So I, I can't think of a better way for Bram Kohlhausen in his collegiate career than going out on a huge comeback win for TCU and really – uh, he didn't just win for TCU, but he really helped save the Big Twelve. Their uh, bowl season uh, as a conference has not been going well. Be it as it may, Oklahoma wasn't the best team in the Big Twelve this year.
0: I don't think that they were the second best team in the Big Twelve this year. I think that I know you can't do this, and it's going to kill me to do this. But <laughs> Steph doesn't get hurt, or Stidham doesn't get hurt. We're going to New Year's Six bowl. We're going to a semifinal. TCU, Dotson stays healthy, TCU's number two. And I think that you look at a healthy Baylor team and you look at a healthy TCU team, those are the top two teams in the conference. You did some things well. I don't think you can take anything away from Baker Mayfield and the magic that he was able to produce. But Oklahoma State's defense was so garbage that they had no chance the second they stepped on the football field. Everybody knew that. So if if you don't get those injuries, then you're looking at a much better showing for the Big 12. And just the fact that we finished as strong as we did, I think is great because – man, it was looking really rough for us. And for a conference that's struggling to stay relevant, even though we do have that power five tag, we're definitely on the bottom bottom half of that deal. And to finish those last three games the way we did, you know, West Virginia, I went to bed. I didn't even watch the game, but I know that we got the win for, for the conference. That's huge because we need to have that national recognition to know that, you know, we're complaining saying that why does a team have to go undefeated, you know, or a one-loss team to make it in when you're talking about a two-loss Stanford who may not even technically win their conference still making it in. So we need to win those games, those out-of-conference games that we're scheduling now. We've got to win those. But the bowl season, that's the last thing you think about for six to eight months, is how did these guys do in the bowl season? And it was a great way for the Big 12 to close it out.
2: And speaking of the bowl season, we have the college football playoff championship game coming up next Monday. Again, Alabama is going to take on Clemson. Both teams looked very dominant in their bowl outings, especially Alabama, shutting out a solid Michigan State team. How do you see that national championship game shaping up? Man,
0: I got to tell you guys, I did not think Clemson was as strong as they did, especially after the showing they had against North Carolina and the way that we manhandled them. That is a really dominant team. Clemson always has the size and speed to do something great, but usually they screw it up. And this team, they got it. They got it. You have to band together. At some point in the season, you get this swag where you say, you know what, no one's going to stop us. If anybody does, it's going to be Alabama, and that's where my bet's going, man. Alabama, right now, with Derrick Henry in that backfield, is just such a dominant running back that, you know, I think it'll be years before we realize how great he really was. And I think the fact that Christian McCaffrey was as spectacular as he was with Stanford kind of overshadows how well Derrick Henry has played this season, even though he won the Heisman. So I think Alabama goes out there and wins it but that, it will be a dogfight and I'm expected to watch, I'm excited to watch
3: it. I guess we can kind of shift gears you know we wanted to ask you about the Texans as well cuz they're sort of in the middle of a um a curious season sort of a, a disappointing season early they've kind of turned around they've um they've had they've fallen on some uh, hard times today um with the injury to Dwayne Brown, but I, I was more curious about, we've been kind of watching uh, concussion. We reviewed it here on the podcast. We followed league of denial. That's sort of been something that we've been looking into and, and care deeply about. And I was reading, there were some comments about Brian Hoyer's concussion injuries over the last few weeks. Um, and uh, I'm reading O'Brien said, um, you know, after the last hit, uh, this was against the Bengals. He, um, he, wasn't functioning correctly uh, as to how we know he'd usually function calling a play, receiving a play, and trying to communicate it to the offense. Uh, and he said, I'm having trouble remembering the plays right now. So that's, that's scary stuff happening to Horner. And then he comes out and starts again today. So, what? I mean, how, serious, how seriously should he be thinking about what he might do with the rest of his career um, and, and whether he should be playing football? And how, how prevalent are these ideas to anybody that's playing in the professional game right now?
0: Yeah, man. I mean, think back to one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, Troy Aikman. Troy had way too many concussions, and it started to affect his day-to-day. And I think that's kind of what you're going to have to judge with Hoyer is, you know, you've made your money. You've been in the league for eight years. Is it worth it? Because I can tell you, against Kansas my senior year, this is the only time it's ever happened, I went off and I had a tackle for loss, and the running back, I didn't see him come through the hole, and I was coming through hard, and I kind of knocked myself out. And for the rest of the first half, I forgot all the plays that we made, and I had to have Rodney Chadwick call him. Because it's it's just a matter of the game. You're out there and you can function, but concussions are a funny thing. You never know how they're going to affect you. And the way that you're groomed in football is it doesn't matter, Rub some dirt on it, you'll be fine. But, you know, as we're seeing, there's some lasting effects to this whole concussion deal. And, you know, a point Danny Connell has been a champion for uh, the NFL and saying that concussions aren't as big of a deal as you think they are Is it's the repeating hit or the repeated hits that you're taking. Well, I got to tell you, man, even if you're not getting concussed, those repeated hits that you're taking can't be healthy for you. So it just goes back to, like I said, Coach Kaz and and the strength staff, man. You just got to build that neck up as strong as you can. Brian Hoyer, I can't make that decision for him. He's going out there. He's playing well right now. I mean, the guy's passed for almost 200 yards. He threw a pick. I understand. Brian Hoyer, he's going to throw a pick. He is what he is. But from here on out, I think you really do need to take it or look deep inside yourself, talk to your family, consult with your doctors and figure out, man, is this thing, is this a, a quick fix? You know, are concussions going to add PTSD down the road? Am I going to have Alzheimer's early onset? You know, y- y- these are things that we're just now figuring out. We don't have the data. You know, it- it's public knowledge to really figure it out. So it- it's tough, man. I mean, concussions are something that you, you never want to come out of the game for any reason. Usually the only time you see people come out is when they're clearly knocked out to the point where they can't function or they have some load-bearing or super uh, structural injury that, that you can't play with. So, man, it, 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 it's a scary thing because, you know, I played football, of course. My dad played football back in the 80s when they had three days and 100-degree weather and they didn't give you water. So, um, you know, that's a decision that he's going to have to make for himself. And we'll see it play out more and more as guys come out, as you see the effects of it. I know there's guys that I've played with that I can already see the effects of the concussions on them, but the reality is it's the nature of the game. And I don't think that'll ever
2: change. Speaking on concussions and injuries, I mean, your dad spent a few years with the Redskins uh, playing safety. And then, of course, you spending time at Baylor and then both the Broncos and Texans organizations. Do you guys ever chat about, uh, you know, kind of the effects that football had on you guys, you know, physically? And, you know, I know especially for you, uh, after being cut by the Texans in training camp in 2013, do you kind of look back on it and say, you know, maybe that was a blessing in disguise for my long term health? Yeah,
0: I mean, I've already had a second shoulder surgery on the one that I I busted up my senior year. Uh, had a pretty nasty high ankle sprain. That's a lingering injury, uh, neck and back issues. There are things that, yeah, I mean, I, thank God I was able to walk away from the game on my own will somewhat. Um, you know, it's something that I could have still pursued and something that I technically still can pursue. But, you know, your health is something that you have to focus on because God bless you, with one body, and you got to treat it well. And, um, you know, some guys are built to where, they can sustain those injuries. One of my mentors, Mark Slareth, had over 30 surgeries on his knees, knees, back, shoulders, elbows, and he's 50 years old and he's struggling to walk. So the ecstasy that's associated with playing football is like nothing that I can, I can compare. Uh, So I understand the reason why guys want to stick around and plus that money. I mean, unless you're a hedge fund manager or you were just born into it, it's hard to get that much money that quick. So, there are reasons to stick around. I get it. The money is there. The fame is there. The free stuff is there. But when you're challenging nature and you're looking at a situation where you may never bounce back, you may never be able to run with your kids. Look at Tiger Woods, who heck is a golfer. And he understood that he needed to sit down for a little while. It's It's got to be you, your family, maybe even your pastor that you go and talk to, but you got to figure out where the limit is and don't push past it. Otherwise, you'll be looking back in 20 years and limping or on a wheelchair, and you'll wonder why you why you took that risk.
2: Kind of transitioning back to the Texans and injuries. Uh, Texans color analyst Andre Ware said that the Texans can truly absorb an injury at any position, but left tackle. In Sunday's game against the Jaguars, early in the first first quarter, uh, starting left tackle Dwayne Brown suffered a right knee injury. How big is this for the Texans heading into the playoffs? I mean, they've had injuries left and right, starting at the beginning of the year with Arian Foster. I I mean, do you think this hurts them even more heading into the postseason?
0: Yeah, when you have a quarterback that's having concussion issues, losing your left tackle is—that may end your season right there. Because is not the kind of quarterback that can make up for a lost left tackle. He's not mobile. He doesn't have a ton of creativeness to him. He's not like a, a Johnny Manziel back in college um that's an injury that is going to be really tough for them to overcome because they've already had issues on the line the shift that they've made has been on the interior not on the outside and you're going to see pretty clearly as they step into the first round of the playoffs set that's something i don't think the texans can overcome we, the run game outside of you know alfred blue's a big strong running back but he's north and south he's not seeing he's not cutting back um he doesn't have that creative aspect that i was mentioning earlier with hoyer so you're just going to struggle um unless you can really find a way to establish that run game or you can factor in the tight end, where tight ends have just been abysmal this year. Uh, Fedorowitz looks every bit of a tight end, but he hasn't done it. Um, Griffin hasn't had a chance to really shine either. So unless you can really factor in the tight end, I think you're going to see a lot of issues because that play action doesn't bear as much weight when you don't have Arian Foster back there cutting you up for eight yards a run.
1: Elliot, just in terms of Houston personnel, we've uh, on the weekly group we've talked about uh, QB options for the Texans heading into next season. Do you see uh, any strong quarterbacks coming out of the draft, or um, even somebody like an RG3 character coming to Houston in um, case Hoyer um, can't make the cut with all of his issues?
0: You know, I think with Rick Smith, uh, he's on the chopping block right now, and it's funny. I was talking to my dad yesterday. Rick Smith's kid's grand or uh, godfather is. Um, why am I blanking? Texas owner. Uh, McNair. Bob McNair. Bob McNair is his kid's godfather. So he has, he has some job security, but you really are pushing it. I mean, throughout his tenure, he hasn't brought in that big marquee quarterback. I mean, Matt Shaw was a great guy for us. He fit the system really well. When you could do that play action, just kind of dump it over the middle to Andre. But he's going to need to either draft a guy really high – and. Nowadays in the NFL, you don't see free agency the way you see it in, in other sports. You're not going to see an Albert Pujols come in. You're not going to see a LeBron James make a big shift. You just don't see those. Unless Drew Brees, by, by chance, ends up getting cut and not re-signed to, uh, to New Orleans, you're going to have to draft a guy. I think Robert coming down here would be great, but Robert right now, you know, as, as positively as we view him because we love him from college, I don't know that he's a name enough or that he would bring in the immediate success that they're looking for. I think he can, and I know he can, but in that system, you never know. You never know.
2: Again, we have Elliot Coffee joining us on the Weekly Brew. And, Elliot, we really appreciate you taking the time out of your weekend and joining us on the podcast. And uh, we know you're big on social media. If you can, go ahead and let the listeners know how they can find you on Twitter and any other social media platform that you'd like to offer.
0: So, find me on Twitter at Y-U-N-G-C-O-F-F, Young Coff. You can blame my college roommates for, for making that stupid Twitter name for me. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm on there a bunch. I'm chopping it up, um, talk a bunch of college and NFL on there too. If you guys want to chat it up or hear, you know, my take on anything, feel free to hit me up on there. I usually respond pretty quickly. So Y U N G C O F F, Young Cough.
2: All right, so check him out on Twitter at Young and Elliot. We definitely appreciate you taking the time out and joining us today. All right, thanks, fellas. You're listening to the Weekly Brew. We just had Elliot Coffee on the Weekly Brew podcast, and one of the things that we mentioned was the college football playoff. We spoke a little bit about the preview for the January 11th championship game. However, one of the things that we did not discuss were the poor television ratings from the college football playoff, and specifically uh, the Orange and the Cotton Bowls, which served as the playoff semifinals, were down 13% from a year ago, averaging 8.2 rating to a 7.1 rating, Uh, essentially 30% less people viewed this year's playoffs compared to last year's playoffs. Now, granted, there were some blowouts, uh, you know, and the games might not have been as appealing, but it seems like this is a larger problem for college football moving forward. I mean, both of these games were on New Year's Eve when Americans have plans already uh, to go out and do their thing on New Year's Eve. I'm curious, one, Kevin, I know you were at the Peach Bowl watching the New Year's Six game, but did either of you actually watch both of the playoff semifinals and if not do you see this as a prolonged problem for college football
3: oh yeah i didn't watch anything i was uh, i was at work all day long Uh, You know, from very early in the morning, I think I boarded the media shuttle to get to the stadium at, you know, 8 or 8.30, something like that. And uh, I wasn't done writing until, you know, about 10 o'clock at night. So I, like most of the uh, journalists in attendance, did not have a lot of time to watch uh, other football. I think there was a, in the media room, there was a television that had football on, but, you know, we're all kind of tapping furiously away. So I don't think I'm indicative of the average person, but I will say that if I were an average person, that's a bad way to phrase it. I will say that if I didn't have a job to do that day, um, you know, New Year's seems like a, New Year's Eve particularly seems like a time when people go out and it's not really, football is not a going out kind of activity. Football's a, you know, you have a Super Bowl party, people come into your home, you kind of um, get comfortable and watch it. When you're out, I don't think that you necessarily want to be watching football anyway. It just seems like conflicting. Uh, you know, ideas or plans uh, happening at this time of year. And it's just inexplicable to me that they stuck with it. And I'm not sure I totally understand the sort of labyrinthine um, motives that people have, you know, in perpetuating this for the next 10 years or whatever. But, uh, but they were locked into it. And I think they, they got hammered for it, and rightfully so. So we're probably going to see lower ratings than you could otherwise have over the next decade as we're locked into these contracts and putting people, you know, uh, where they have to choose between going out on New Year's Eve and watching a ball drop
2: somewhere versus, you know, uh, watching a bowl game. Jeremy, I'm I'm kind of interested on your take on this, but uh, last year, ESPN officials realizing that seven of the next 10 years of the playoffs, that the semifinals would be on New Year's Eve, asked the college football playoff to consider moving the season semifinals to January 2nd, especially this year, taking advantage of the fact that uh, January 2nd fell on a Saturday and there was no NFL game on it seems to me like the college football playoffs are a stubborn organization. And when you have advertisers, you know, paying for 35 million people to watch the game and, you know, say that only 20 million people watch the game, you're not getting the biggest bang for your buck. Do you see this as being a problem for, uh, you know, not only college football fans, but people that are shelling out the advertising dollars?
1: Oh, absolutely. If I was an advertising exec, and I was looking, to plug in ads to, to, uh, to material that was uh, going to be seen by a lot of people. I'd think twice about um, you know buying a slot on a New Year's Eve bowl. Uh, I thought it was a really dumb decision. I mean, just for my part, I was at a party and the games weren't even on. Um, I, I think uh, as time went on, I think somebody flipped on the game, but I mean, we were, we were partying. We were having a good time. It was New Year's Eve. We we're about to bring in the new year. We had fireworks. There was all this stuff going on. And here are the New Year's Bowls, which were both blowouts, so that didn't help. But uh, a really poor decision on a part of the of of ESPN, and I I can't help but think that maybe these ratings will have to change the way that they're structuring this going into next year. Um, you know, I, I think it just in terms of the fans too. I mean, we. Um, we want to see all these games, and we want to watch, but you can't do it when people are still working, when people have other events planned. Uh, just New Year's Eve is just not the time to do that.
3: Looking back with the benefit of hindsight, it is honestly chilling how close we were to buying a 90-second spot uh, You know, in one of those games for the Weekly Brew. So I think we really dodged a bullet there, uh, seeing the numbers come out after the fact.
2: I think we would have broken the bank on that, but uh, Stuart Mandel from Fox Sports said that the, he wrote an article this past week Uh, Saying that the first day of 2015 could not have gone more perfectly for college football playoff organizers. The last day proved an unmitigated disaster. What he's referencing is something that kind of Jeremy touched on that, you know, for New Year's Eve there are a lot of Americans that are actually working, especially when you go to the major population centers, uh, such as on the West Coast. I mean, that, that orange bowl kicked off on the East Coast at four o'clock, you know, that's, that's around the noon, that's around one o'clock over on the West Coast. And uh, that's something that actually Colin Cowherd uh, spoke about on his show. And We'll go ahead and drop in the audio right now.
0: I think this is just a a good sign of the college football power brokers being completely out of touch with reality because their position, I asked them about this. I I pushed on this. I wrote this. I said,
2: this is a disastrous decision. The ratings are down 40%. Oh, no, no. Last year, these were 15.5s, which outside of the NFL, those those are are NBA Game 7 numbers. It's
0: an incredible number that they got last year when they played on January one. And I think the college football power brokers were arrogant in the sense that they were like, we're gonna make a new tradition on New Year's Eve. Well, here's the problem. New Year's Eve has had the same tradition for hundreds of years. And it's a big American oh, tradition. huge. And, and and I just think this is a, this is something they're gonna to have to resolve. To ESPN's credit, they've been pushing and saying, this makes zero sense.
2: All right, so as you heard from that audio, both Colin Cowherd and Clay Travis, both of Fox Sports, uh, sp- you know, said that the college playoff committee is out of touch with reality. You know, I love college football. I think we all do. We all enjoy the sport. But to me, it's kind of disheartening that they're not paying attention to the common man in America and not wanting to make an adjustment. I'm, I'm curious if these poor ratings are going to force their hand... Uh, as we move into next year in the college football playoffs?
3: I mean, I don't have any idea what's going to force their hand, but uh, but certainly I think that it's deplorable that people are having to choose or not having a choice at all. I mean, I think there's probably a fair amount of people that were deprived of football they would have liked to watch ideally because they're in jobs they can't get out of. So, I mean, I think that as much as I dislike Colin Coward or what I know of him, I don't know him personally, but um, as much as I tend to, he sort of grates on me, uh, I mean, that's a fair and logical point. There, there, something doesn't need to be done, that's the sad part, but something should be done, and and I don't have any answers to whether or not it will be.
2: You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Guys, we've mentioned New Year's, 2016, uh, but one of the things that we haven't done on the podcast yet is kind of reflect back on 2015. Now, on the podcast, we discussed a wide variety of topics, you know, everything from sports, politics, social issues, but we didn't really dive into what we thought were the top stories of 2015. Now, I know that we mentioned our Athlete of the Year on an earlier podcast, and that's something that you can go back and find on iTunes. Uh, We know that a lot of our listeners enjoy going back to listen to older episodes, but I'm curious from your end. What were some of the top stories of 2015? Now, this can be in politics. This can be in uh, social issues. It could be even local. Well, Jeremy, we'll start with you.
1: If I'm looking at the, the top issue of 2015, um, at least as it pertains to the U.S., uh, I, I think the same-sex marriage debate, um, the Supreme Court decision coming down, legalizing gay marriage in all 50 states, I think that was huge. Uh, reflects a big uh, shift in opinion and uh, the way our society is going. You know whether you're for it or against it. um, Supreme Court was very clear on it, and uh, uh, definitely, you know, it kind of set off a lot um, of reaction across the country. Some, some good, some bad. Uh, You know, it brings to mind the um, the county clerk in Kentucky that kind of became uh, touched over the national debate, and uh, it was sort of that that whole thing turned into a debate about religious liberty and. Um, how the state can reconcile, uh, uh, you know, religious liberty and um, the rights of same-sex couples. So um, so to me, that was a huge issue, uh, at least for the U.S.
2: Jeremy, I think it was definitely a a hot-button issue uh, as it happened. But, you know, I think... uh... Uh, it's, it's the law of the land now. And I think we're uh, starting to see some of the reactions, and especially in some of the, uh, the red states. Uh, this past year, we, we spoke about uh, the hero ordinance being struck down in Houston. So uh, I think it's going to be uh, an issue that uh, is still fought by a you know, small minority uh, of people, but uh, it's the law of the land now. Uh, so that, that was definitely one of the top stories. Uh, Kevin, I'm curious, what was one of the big stories or issues for you in 2015?
3: I mean, there's so much stuff that happened. Looking back, we had, uh, you know, by calendar year, we had the first, uh, you know, you might say legitimate college champion with a playoff uh, system in place. So that was that was fascinating. Um, Royals winning their first World Series uh, in three decades. Uh, How about American Pharoahs? That really moved the needle for any of you guys? The first Triple Crown in like almost 40 years? It was enjoyable to watch. That's for sure. Yeah, see, if I were still a gambler, it might have might have done more for me. I was sort of on the periphery because uh, I, I gave up gambling years ago. But, I mean, to me, uh, you have two Western Conference NBA teams that are sort of the story of 2015 as it comes to a close and going into 2016, and that's the Rockets, who had a banner year Um sort of just fall apart this season in a way that is inexplicable and then the Golden State Warriors a team that you know um I was listening to a podcast by Paul Shirley and uh, Justin Halpern the guy that's uh it's uh, stuff my dad says, I guess would be an edited version of the name of his show and Twitter account or whatever, but um, this is from, uh, I want to say it was like three years ago, and he said nobody's ever going to win with the Golden State Warriors, and and so we're talking about quite a turnaround to being historically one of the best teams ever, if not the best team ever, we'll still see the way the season plays out. And then the Rockets just having the wheels absolutely fall off, firing Kevin McHale, which did nothing good for them. Um, they're floundering now. Uh, you know, lost four in a row, below 500 again. I mean, a team that had so much promise, that had you know, arguable MVP candidate, made it all the way to the Western Conference Finals, um, and, and put up. You know, a reasonable fight there. What is going on with this team? Have you guys been watching the Rockets? Can you diagnose what the problem is with this? uh, I mean, I can't say any of the words I would ordinarily say because it's a clean podcast, but just what an absolutely abysmal team they've been so far.
2: It's shocking to me. And I know we brought the guys on from Houston Rocks at Podcast to discuss this, but I don't know that anyone knows the answer. I mean, they've been outright atrocious this season. (laughs) And I think uh, I saw something on Twitter that said, if you're a Rockets fan or a Rockets beat reporter, uh, this season is being... Uh, this season has to be horrible for you. And I know as a fan, it's kind of disappointing to watch. I mean, you see them go and beat the San Antonio Spurs. Then you see them lose the next night to a, a team that is well below 500. And it's it's cyclical. I mean, this team, they have talent. They're just not putting it to use. I don't know if it's coaching. I don't know if it's egos or some issue in the locker room, but something has to change. I'm just not sure uh, that I can diagnose what that is at this point.
3: In the loss to Golden State, um, I don't know if you guys were watching. It was horrible looking. And one of the reasons it was horrible looking was that the Warriors, were without Steph Curry, so no Steph Curry. Um, there have been a lot of memes on Twitter and so forth where you know people are saying like you know that he, the team's nothing without him. And obviously they struggled. And then all of a sudden, not only did they not have Steph Curry, uh, no Harrison Barnes, no Barbosa, no Festus uh, You know, so many key components that team, and they still soundly beat the Rockets. And then the Spurs beat them. Um, you know, after after the Rockets pulled out a miracle win that I was in attendance for Christmas Day. Uh, you know, they go to San Antonio and lose without Duncan uh, and and Parker scoring a single point which is uh, it's never happened in the history of those two guys being together that they haven't scored a point and uh, and they, I don't think they've ever won a game where Duncan hasn't scored a single point I don't think he's been held scoreless in his career so that's uh, they're finding weird historically significant ways to lose games and it's so frustrating and I don't know how they dig themselves out of this you know I've been ringing the bell for a while more has got to make some sort of a personnel move because they fired the
2: coach what else can they do I'm not sure but speaking of somebody that who does not like losing I think that's my storyline of 2015. And do you guys know who that might be? Uh, Ronda Rousey.
1: That sounds like Trump to me. I mean, to be honest, this guy is the troll. He's the troll king of the GOP.
2: Uh, Donald Trump is currently the frontrunner among GOP candidates as we gear up for the Iowa caucus here uh, here in just a few weeks. But when he announced his campaign uh, you know, over the summer, I, I don't know that a lot of people took him seriously. Uh, but one of the things that he's able, been able to do captivate his social media following, and honestly, it's quite fascinating. Politico uh, ran a story kind of dissecting uh, what his tweets said in 2015 from when he announced his presidency to December 31st, and they said that from that time, he has 5.5 million followers. He tweeted 3,249 times from mid-July when he uh, made his campaign announcement. Uh, He's had 1,778 retweets of his followers. Uh, He spoke 330 times on poll-related messaging. 97 tweets were about Jeb Bush. 80 references were to his crowds being larger than life. He spent, now I find this interesting, 66 tweets on Megyn Kelly, 65 tweets on Hillary Clinton, 49 tweets on Marco Rubio, and 45 tweets bragging about his television ratings. Uh, This is a guy that says that he has $35 million below budget right now, and it's just bragging his way to the top. I find it fascinating. I mean, he's he's a serious threat right now uh, to the grand old party, and I'm interested to see how this plays out heading into 2016, because if you count Teflon Don out, he comes back and his poll numbers just keep on improving, and to me, it's baffling.
3: I like the way we're bringing advanced stats and analytics into the discussion of Trump here, you know, taking it from like the NBA and baseball into the field of politics. That that list of numbers was impressive. And, uh, you know, how many of those tweets were about him wanting to uh, fornicate with his daughter, I wonder, because that was also a story that I I followed very closely throughout the season.
1: Which really doesn't matter, because whatever he says, it doesn't matter. I mean, his followers, they are steadfast with him through all of this. I mean, I I think one thing that makes Donald Trump so appealing, or or at least, uh, well, I say a good way to describe Donald Trump. He's the bad boy you don't want your daughter dating, but she does it anyway because it pisses you off. I mean, that is Donald Trump in a nutshell. And at the end of the day, he's going to break your heart because when it comes between him and Hillary, I mean, I don't even think that's – there's just no question there that he would lose. So, um, yeah, I (laughs) – Uh, It doesn't surprise me him talking about his daughter or Hillary Clinton or Megyn Kelly or Carly Fiorina or whoever it is. This guy is just he seems like he's bulletproof and nothing seems to be slowing him down.
3: You know who had an interesting perspective on uh, why he is popular and the people with whom he's popular? A lot of people have examined focus groups, tried to get a bead on on why exactly or what what what. Keeps his campaign ticking, I guess. The most fascinating look at it I saw was The Daily Show, um, now helmed by Trevor Noah. They did a segment with Jordan Klepper where he traveled to Vegas and talked to um, some Trump supporters. And I think the segment was called, uh, who said it, Trump or a racist sandwich? And um, if you have not had a chance to see that, it's not quite as silly as it sounds. It's pretty insightful. And I definitely would recommend that as a, as a, a weird perspective into who these people are and what makes them support Trump despite the things he's doing and saying.
2: I'm curious to see if he can actually hang on when voters actually go to the polls, and that's something that's going to be interesting to see if this plays out in the media as it has, to see if voters actually go to the polls and support this guy.
1: I, I think among likely Republican voters, the ones who actually do vote in the primary, they don't really wake up until February. So, uh, I'm, I, you know, as troubling as his poll numbers are, and as troubling as some of the, some of the things that he says are. Uh, I think that most GOP voters are looking more at Cruz, Rubio, Christie, not Jeb. Uh, But I I, I don't think I'm I'm still steadfast in my belief that Donald Trump does not get the nomination when push when push comes to shove.
2: I tend to agree with you, but at the end of the day, 2015 was quite a remarkable year, and uh, one of the things that I enjoyed was getting together uh, with you guys, and I look forward to uh, you know making this podcast a little bit better and making it uh, you know a daily part of everyone's lives as we head into 2016 you're listening to the weekly brew we had a fun episode on the weekly brew episode 23 again we thank elliot coffee for joining us on the podcast we also spoke about uh you know the college football playoffs and the poor ratings that they had at the last day of 2015 we also discussed kind of our top highlighted moments for 2015 and uh just to confirm we are recording on sunday afternoon and the houston texans just clinched the afc south officially and we'll be heading into the postseason for the playoffs. So we definitely look forward to discussing that, hopefully more as they make their run to the Super Bowl. But guys, I enjoyed today's podcast. And, uh, you know, Kevin, one of the things that is more enjoyable for you is our podcast ratings on iTunes. And as I understand, there were no ratings or reviews this week.
3: Yeah, I was really looking forward to this part where I get to sort of uh, humorously look at the things people say uh, about us and the job that we do, and it's just bitterly disappointing to um – to have nothing here, it's—I don't know if you can hear it in my voice—but I am personally crushed and let down. Um, but in the spirit of of holiday generosity and goodwill towards men, and all that stuff that you hear about in the carols, I'm willing to overlook it. But um, this is going to have to be the last week where I'm, I'm willing to. Uh, to sort of look the other way on this, we need some some people to step up and do the right thing, and uh, and go to iTunes, click ratings and reviews, uh, give us a five star review, and then let us know things like um, what do you enjoy about the show, what would you like us uh, to do on the show, um, you know what uh, who's your favorite host is a question that Austin always comes up with, and, and somehow that's never swung my way in terms of who's the favorite host. I'm hoping someday I'm someone's favorite host, but um, but yeah, so no reviews this week. That's disappointing. It's kind of how we grow. We really need uh, to show up in people's searches when they go on iTunes and the way. That um, The the thing that influences that the most is to have iTunes reviews. So it's very simple. Uh, Let that be your gift to us this season. Go ahead and and do that uh, as soon as possible.
1: I agree with Kevin. I think our listeners should start off the new year right and leave a very nice review for us uh, on iTunes. That would be great. A great belated Christmas present to me. Uh, I just want to say that I enjoy doing this with both you guys. Uh, It's definitely uh, the highlight to my weekend. So uh,
2: here's to uh, a bigger and better 2016 for the weekly brew. I will cheers to that. And Jeremy Kevin, it's definitely been a pleasure recording episode twenty three of the weekly brew podcast. As always, for my co-host, Kevin Cook, Jeremy Paxton, I'm Austin Staten. We'll see you next week. And in the new year, guys, brew responsibly.
1: You've been listening to the Weekly Brew.